0: All doing? Yeah. Good. Did you see the beautiful Sukkah? out here. Lovely, yes? So you're welcome to go and sit in it. It is actually one of the like, commandments of the Festival of Tabernacles to welcome guests into your home. Um, there's a really beautiful movie called Ush Pezin, if you haven't seen it yet, and there's good subtitles for you um, out of Israel about Sukkot and welcoming guests, a s- sweet couple that does so. So anyway, if you want to go and check it out, um, the first night of Sukkot was Friday night, and it goes on for eight days with the final day being the like big Hosanna, big Hosanna Rabbah, like big, big. So you can come, it'll be here. It might even still be up a little bit when you come back next week. So just come enjoy and hang out in the Sukkot. Um, just a couple really beautiful things. When you keep the Festival of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths or in gathering, or Sukkot, you are supposed to uh, hang out in a booth for eight days. So it's like the best, you know. Kids, when you, you were little, you wanted your parents to like get in the fort with you. God commanded it. He was like parents must hang out in a fort with their kids for eight days. That'll be great. And you just put up all your meals. And many people even sleep in their sukkahs. And if you are in um, Israel and you are in the place where there's like a lot of apartment buildings, people will build them out on alongside their balconies. So as you look up, they'll just be. Three-sided structures with roofs everywhere you go. And one of the reasons why you're supposed to do this is because you're remembering that we wandered in the wilderness with God for 40 years, wandered slash followed, and uh, God took good care of us. And so we're going to reenact that every fall and remember that God did that for us. So hopefully you'll get a chance to sit in someone's sukkah. And if you haven't yet, you go there. One of the rules of the rabbi said is that you have to have some visibility so you can see the sky sort of poking through either during the day or at night to remember that God is our ultimate covering, that our dwelling place here is temporary. Um, and that God dwells with us and we get to dwell with God. It's quite lovely and beautiful. And also when the Israelites were in the wilderness with God, it started out with them coming to Mount Sinai and being given what we call the Ten Commandments, which was sort of a betrothal ceremony between Israel and God's people. So this is also like a honeymoon suite where you get to remember um, what it was to commit yourself to God and be in God's presence. Cool, huh? So have some fun with that. I'm Pastor Danielle. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark Church. I'm really excited to be with you here today. And we are going to continue our Matthew 25 series this afternoon. Um, We've been spending some time with this text. And again, just invite you to sort of sit, close your eyes, let it wash over you as we continue our M25 series. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then the unrighteous have this converse happen and their story's not so great. So that we will just end hang out with there for a moment. Okay, I'm going to be telling you a little bit of a story from a favorite book of mine called The Shadow of God by a professor in Florida named Leo Sangren. And it's uh, stories taken from early Judaism that he has created in his mind based upon, his, it's like historical fiction short stories. And this short story that he wrote is called I see. The reason why I love this story, and I want to share it with you a little bit this afternoon, is because I think a lot of times when we read the Gospels, when we read Jesus' teachings, when we hear them, when we even hear this passage in Matthew 25, we immediately go to, what does that mean for end times? What does that mean for what's going to happen in the future to me? What does that mean for what's going to happen in the future to this person I don't like? What does it mean for um, how it's all going to sort of pan out in the end. And we immediately go to heaven. Don't a lot of you? I mean, fair enough. This takes place at the end time. So it's easy enough to think that. But what if you were amongst the first hearers of Jesus's teachings here? What if you weren't listening to Jesus's teachings of Matthew 25 in the year 2023? What if you were sitting in Galilee in a field or by the lake And Jesus sat down and he started to teach. And you were amongst many first century Galileans sitting there listening in. What might you take away? And would our first thought be, oh, this is about where I'm going to go when I die? Or would our first thought be something different? So let's take a few moments to sort of time travel back 2,000 years and imagine yourself in the Galilee. Now the Galilee, if you've not been, beautiful, particularly in the springtime. So let's pick then, because summer can be a bit oppressive, the heat. So let's pick a nice springtime, and we're sitting there, and the hills are green, and the waters may be flowing a little bit. And Josephus records that the Galilee is so bountiful that it is the envy of all other lands, and that when God created the Galilee and its beauty and its bounty there, that there was not one species on earth that couldn't flourish in the Galilee. That the olive trees could grow and the wheat and the barley could grow alongside all the fruit trees. Um, even today, actually, if you walk with us there, you'll see a lot of mangoes. Those, I don't think they were there in Jesus' day. But there's a, even mangoes can grow in the Galilee. Mangoes and bananas. I mean, just everything you can imagine. But let's go to Jesus' day. Dates, figs, um, grapes, wonderful, beautiful, lush fruit and crops. In fact, this was maybe one of the reasons why the Judeans and the Galileans did not get along so well. And a lot of times when we're listening into our text this conflict between Jerusalem and Galilee and like what good can come from Galilee? Cuz lots of good came from Galilee, but Jerusalem had the temple and they had the teachings and they had the rabbis and the sages. They're like, "Well, we got the smarts. And what good could come from Galilee? Y'all just farm hicks kind of up there, fishermen and doing the stuff of the land." But it was the breadbasket of the entire land itself. So imagine that we're there, and it's a beautiful day, and you can kind of sit in here, and we're going to start to listen in and watch how Jesus' teaching landed in the hearts and on the ears of people 2,000 years ago. There was a man named Joachim. Joachim was born blind. Joachim did not have many prospects in life, and so his parents despaired of what would occur. And in fact, Joachim, even as he would walk about, people could almost smell him coming before he arrived because his condition caused an odor that preceded him. And many people couldn't stand to even look upon him as he would have to wipe regularly the mucus off of his eyes. But there was a woman in the area, and her name was Bilcha. Bilcha was born with a different type of condition. She was considered unseemly. Some people even in the village referred to her with unkind and unpleasant terms, even as much as calling her ugly. So her father despaired. What kind of match would I ever find for my daughter Bilha? Well, Joachim can't see. And he's a good man, and he's a hardworking man, and what kind of woman would marry him anyway will make a match. And the parents agreed, and so Bilha and Joachim are married. Every morning, Joachim wakes up ready to go to work. Bilhah wakes up at the crack of dawn as the rooster crows, and she grabs together a little bit of some meager food for her husband. She puts a warm bowl of water out for him so he can clean his face after an evening of all the crust that has formed over his eyes. And he sits on a stool, and he takes very humbly what she offers him, and she says to him, "'My husband, how are you doing?' And he says, "'Today I will go, and I will get our daily bread.'" And she says, thank you, my husband. And with his meager effort, he goes, he cleans himself up. He does his morning routine. He says, the Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. And he goes and he starts his walk. Now, Joachim knew very well the way that he would start to walk to his employer. Uh, His name was Dosithius. And Dosithius had this beautiful estate. And so he would walk down here in the Galilee, and you can imagine him on the path, going with his staff as he would go along, with his handkerchief tucked in so he could wipe his eyes as needed, and a little bit of barley bread, and maybe an egg, or anything else that Bilhah could have put in for his lunch for the day. Now Joachim had this beautiful imagination— and he could hear everything, and he would imagine everything as he would go. And he would imagine that the babbling brook as he crossed over that little stream would be singing joys and praises to God. And he would continue down the path, and he would hear the pigeons in the air, and he thought, I know that they are pigeons, but i like to imagine that they are angels of the Lord, and that they are praising the Most High. And he would continue on down his way. He was not afraid for that he did not understand. He, he didn't even lament the fact that he couldn't see because you can't. Lament something you've never had. He was born this way and had learned to see in the world all around him. So he continues on down the way. He even knew that if somebody ever gave him any trouble, that the Mighty One had already instructed all of Israel to take good care of that person. Cursed be anyone who puts a stumbling block in front of the blind, the Torah says in Leviticus 19. So he knew that God, the Holy One, would take good care of Joachim and justice. Joachim arrives at Dositheus's gate from his humble house of a small first-century home. This one would probably be quite nice. Bocha and Joachim probably couldn't afford something quite so lovely. And he goes to the home of Dositheus, a Sadducee. Now, Sadducees had a lot of wealth. They were connected with the people of power in the time. They were connected to Herod and to Rome and even to the upper workings of the temple. And Docetius was no difference. He had massive wealth and a huge courtyard and he had much work to do. Now this time as Joachim walks up to Docetius's estate and he's waiting, he'll often just sit and wait for the overseer to come. But this day something very unusual happens. Docetheus, the master of the household, comes to meet Joachim himself. He says, Joachim, I have something very important to show you. You must come with me. Joachim is very excited about this. I mean, the master of the house, Docetheus himself, is speaking to him. And he invites him in and he says, we have a new grinding stone And he invites Joachim to come and put his hands on it. Now, if this were just a typical small kitchen, you would have a small grinding stone. In fact, that would be quite nice, the Cuisinart KitchenAid of the day, where the woman would put the grain in the middle and then start to rotate between those two stones, that hard wheat grain, and start to see the flour come out. And many times, beasts of burdens like donkeys would be used to go around and around in a circle in order to crush like olive pits and things like this and to start to have that mill. But this mill is a brand new mill that Dosetheus has just purchased from Capernaum because Capernaum has the best mills of all the land, for sure. This beautiful basalt, volcanic stone that is perfect for grinding coarse grain. And this beautiful Mill, you pour the grain into the top of the cone of the collar. A cone sits up underneath it, and as you hear the grain trickle down, then the animal or the person blind would start to rotate around and around and around for hours to grind that grain down. So, Josithi says to Joachim, Come here and let me show you the best new KitchenAid appliance you've ever seen in your life. It's wonderful. So we've gathered all the grain and it's all sitting here. Now come. And so he says, I want you to come three paces forward. Joachim walks three paces forward. He looks up at his master because he doesn't know that you're not supposed to do that. He's never seen somebody grovel in front of a, a wealthy landowner before. So he looks up with interest at his master as he waits the instructions. He doesn't see Dositheus's look of disgust as he looks on Joachim. But Joachim has incredibly accurate imagination. And as he imagines Dosithius, he imagines him quite well, with a bit of a furrowed brow, extra flesh fore and aft, the same that he has felt on Dositheus's hand, and that Dosithius kind of walks with a heavy, trodden one, of one who has enjoyed quite a lot of festival meals. So Dositheus says to Joachim, come here, come feel this Collar at the top, and Joachim says, Ah, yes, I see. The grain goes into the top. He says, Yes, yes, yes. You'll gather the gourd, grab the gourd, dip it into the grain, and pour it into the top of this collar. Okay, yes, I see. Now, as you push around, it'll start to grind the grain. And Joachim nods. He says, yes, it's very beautiful. And I see, and he puts his hands over the instrument and understand, starts to begin to understand how it works. And he says, master, thank you so much for this important job, and I'll be happy to do it. He said, well, I want you to pay a quick note. When it comes down to the bottom, the, gr- the flour will be nice and fine, and you must grab that, gra- that fine flour, for it will be used for a beautiful feast later of fine bread. And Joachim says, I see, I see. This starts to annoy Disithius. He says, How do you why do you say I see every time I tell you something? When you in fact cannot see? And Joachim says, Well, you see, the Holy One, blessed be he, has given me understanding. And I want him to know that I do indeed understand and I can see, and I think it must delight him to know that as I live in this world with my understanding that I look forward to the day, the resurrection to come, when my body will be made whole, and I will in fact see. Docetius laughs. He's like, I'm a Sadducee. Don't you know? I'm Sadducee. I do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. There's nothing in the Torah at all to suggest that you will be resurrected from the dead. And Joachim says, yes, I know. I know that this is a debate. But still it is something that I hope for. Ducetia says, you might as well sit there and hope for three meals to magically appear in your bowl all day. That's the same hope you have for the resurrection. And he says, I see. I understand. I'll get about my work. So Yukim starts to walk Around in circles for hours, scooping the grain out with a gourd, pouring it into the top of the collar, hearing the grain trickle down between the cone and the collar of the basalt, and then he starts to push. And then he can see he can see that the flower starts to hang out in the yam, the basin at the bottom, and he starts to collect it and put it aside so that a good working servant will take it to the next step in for the feast and the festival. Well, as he's sitting in there and it starts to be the heat of the day, he takes a short break and he pulls out his little bit of, of barley bread that Bilhah has made him and a little bit of boiled egg. And he sits down to eat and he can hear a great commotion starting about in the courtyard. And it sounds exciting. Something is happening outside and people are excited about it and rustling and bustling about. And he starts to listen in from his place inside the house where he is grinding the grain, and he hears that a rabbi is coming to teach. A rabbi is coming, a rabbi is coming, and and everyone is hustling about, for it's a great honor to welcome a sage, a rabbi, into your home. And for sure, Josephus wants this honor too, this Galilean rabbi who's been making quite a stir. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. He comes from a place called Nazareth. And Joachim starts to listen in, and he's waiting to be invited because it looks as if all the laborers from the field have been brought in and everyone's being brought into the courtyard to come and sit and listen to this rabbi. He's not invited. They've forgotten about him. But he thinks, well, no one has forbidden me to listen. So he sits down in the shade of the door right on the edge of the courtyard, and he starts to listen in. Now, this rabbi starts to teach, and he's sitting there, and he's talking with everyone and teaching. Of course, Josephus is there, and his, um, you know, obnoxious, arrogant, boastful son, Rufus, is there as well. And, and so are all the laborers. And they're probably thinking, this will be great. Let's hope that all of these laborers who don't know the Torah from their right hand and their left hand, let's hope that they can sit and learn something good from the sage, learn about how good days labor, a good days work, something like this. And, and Yeshua starts to ask this question. What? is the kingdom of heaven like? And there's silence. Nobody's responding and everyone's kind of waiting for a few minutes and Joachim thinks, this is not good. Somebody should respond. The, the rabbi has asked a good question. Finally, someone pops up. It's like a treasure in a field. You find it and you think to yourself, what a beautiful treasure, and you bury it back up and you go and you buy that field. You sell everything you own, buy the field. and take. That's what the kingdom of, is like. kingdom of heaven is like. And then Yeshua asks again, to what else shall we compare this kingdom of heaven? And somebody else says, it is like when somebody plants a field. And Yeshua says, yes, yes, exactly. But what if when that person is planting the field, the good grain grows up amongst the weeds? What should you do? And they talked and they debated. And he told the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Well, what else is the kingdom of heaven like? Somebody says, well, I I think it is like a rich man. He goes, yes, it is like a rich man who has a beautiful yield of his harvest. And he holds all of it into his storehouse himself until the day of judgment when he is found lacking. And Joachim thinks, oh dear, I don't know if Dositheus is going to like that message very much. I'm a little bit concerned about how some of this message might fall on the ears of the rich. And some silence has started to sort of, some uncomfortable silence has settled in over on the laborers. As, as Jesus continues to teach, what is the kingdom of heaven like? Joachim thinks this is quite a marvel. He certainly knows the land. He knows how the systems work. He understands how people live in this world. This is amazing. But silence has sort of fallen over. And then he hears his master, Josephus himself, pop up and say, the kingdom of heaven is like a great feast. Phew, thanks, Joachim. This should be safe. This will be fine. No problem. And Jesus agrees. A feast. A feast is a good likeness. Though I fear that if we linger too long upon it, we shall all grow hungry now. Now. There was a very rich man who gave a great banquet, and he invited all the nobles and every important merchant and landowner in the city. And on the day of the feast, he sent his servant to bring the guests to the magnificent table. And he said to his servant, tell them all what we have prepared. Fatted calves, sheep, Chickens, legumes, savory sauces, breads of fine white flour, fruit of every tree and bush, honey from the desert, pastries and nuts, and wine without end. This is the best the Galilee has to offer. The servant went out praising the delicacies of the feast to the limits of his vocabulary, but the invited guests insulted the master." They all made excuses, and they went off to their labors, one to his business, another to his farms. So the servant returned and reported his failure to the master. The master set his hands on his hips. He tucked his thumbs in his sash, rocked back and forth, and frowned a great frown, and he said, Very well, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city. Invite the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Joachim thought, That's me. And the servant went out and found as many as he could and led them to the banquet. And they came in, each marveling at his good fortune. The maimed led the blind. The blind carried the lame. And the master set them down on to his feast. But the house was still not full. So he sent out servant into the highways and hedgerows to call more guests and told them to beat the bushes and find anyone who might be sheltered under them and bring them in so that none of the food would be wasted. And more hungry people came And they ate and ate until their sides hurt. The preacher stopped. Joachim pondered such a strange, even remarkable tale. His stomach had begun to growl at the description of it. The blind carrying the lame into a great banquet? Yes, he would gladly carry a cripple into such a feast if only someone would lead him to it. The preacher continued, "'You see, to be in the kingdom of heaven,' is to, the, to do the will of our Father in heaven. And what is the will of our Father in heaven? But to love your neighbor as yourself, to give to those in need. Let the needy be members of your household. Therefore, when you give a banquet, however humble, invite those who cannot repay you, and our Father in heaven will repay you. Invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed now because they cannot repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection on the judgment day. Decethius looked around and thought, that's enough of this talk. He said, thank you very much, Yeshua of Nazareth. It's wonderful. We're very glad to have you visit, but our laborers need to get back to their work. Joachim jumped up out of the doorway and went right back to the grain and started to go around again and around on the millstone again. But the whole time he kept thinking, this is grist for the mill. What could this possibly mean in my life? Surely this sage from Nazareth, he has taught something beautiful and great today, something that could change everything. I want to do as he has taught. And that day as he is getting paid, and they pay him, not the denarius of day's labor that he is due, but a handful of some copper coins, not even what would be worth half a day's work. But he takes it gladly and says, thank you. And he starts on his way back to his home, He goes into his house with Bilhah, and she says, My husband, how is it? How was your day today? Amazing. I received so much. What were you paid? Oh, barely a day's wage. But I heard this rabbi from Nazareth. This sage came, and he spoke of this incredible banquet where the blind and the lame and the poor would all come together and feast. It was amazing. And Bilhah says, my husband, this is lovely stories. Sounds like a typical Joachim day that you would love to hear such a story, but we don't have enough money to be able to make dinner or meals. I'll do what I can with what you've given me. But Joachim can't wipe the smile of joy off his face, even as he continues to wipe the mucus out of his eyes. And that night, he looks at Bilhah and he says, I know what we are to do. We must throw a feast. And she says, my husband... We do not have enough for the two of us. We cannot throw a feast. It doesn't matter. It's what the rabbi said. We must throw a feast, and we must go out and invite everyone. We have to find people poorer than us, and we need to invite them in. And she says to him, there is no one poorer than you. You are the poorest person that I know. No one is poorer than us. We must have a feast for the poor. You're the poor. You are the poorest person I know. But he is so excited and filled with hope and joy at the thought of having a feast where those who are hungry are fed and welcomed. He can't stop thinking about it all night long. And Bilhah looks over and she sees her good, honest husband who works every day, who deals with ridicule, who doesn't see the looks on people's faces as he passes by, but she does. And she thinks to herself, I will do my best. I will do my best to make this work for my husband. So the next day, she opens up a treasure chest that she has in her home. And at the very bottom, she's tucked away a few coins. And she decides that today she will go out and stretch that meager richness that she has, her meager wealth, and go out into the market and try the best she can because her husband is determined to invite everybody home for dinner that night. Joachim wakes up in the morning as he does, and he takes his wash, and he says his prayer, he says the Shema, and he gets up, and he walks the walk to Dosithius' house. And as he approaches, the master Dosithius comes running out to him. Joachim, Joachim, I've been waiting for you all morning. Master, what is it? I'm here, and I'm I'm ready to work at the mill? No, no, no. You must come. You have to come. You must sit down. Come into my home. Come into my home. Joachim can't figure out what is happening. And Docetheus says, no, no, come in, come and sit. You must sit in my chair. And Joachim sits down in the master's chair, and he can feel that the cushion is so soft it must be filled with the best goose down around. And and he sits down, and Docetheus starts to say to him, thank heaven you are here. I had a dream, and I need to know what it means. I dreamt that I died, and I awakened among the shades in Sheol. It was like unto a pit of refuse, and the smoke burned my nostrils, and it scorched my throat. I thirsted. That is not a pleasant situation, I assure you, Joachim. He says, not pleasant at all, master. I looked about, and I saw that you sat in a garden far away, beyond a chasm, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't ask me how I knew they were the patriarchs, but, well, who else could they have been? and I recognized you. Indeed, you wore the very same tunic that you're wearing today. Joachim said to Dositheus, what, I didn't have a better tunic. This one is thread and worn and there's patches of it. I would have liked to have had a better tunic. No, no, stop with the tunic, Joachim. I need you to pay attention to what is happening. I shouted to you, come, bring me to your garden. And you said, the cost of the passage is one denarius. Can you pay the price? I have nothing. My purse was left behind. And you said, I have but 11 copper coins. 12 make a denarius, but I don't have it. I, sc- I yelled to you, can you not ask the patriarchs to please lend you a coin that I may come? But they shook their heads. And then you rose and walked away. And the patriarchs turned their back to me. Now tell me, Joachim, what does my dream mean? You were in it. You must tell me, what do you think of it? Now think, speak truth. I must know. Your dream is a a wonder, master, said Joachim. By that I mean terrible. Perhaps remarkable is what I mean. To think that But for the lack of a single copper coin, you might have entered the kingdom of heaven. That is wonderful and terrible and remarkable indeed. Well, terrible and remarkable, is that all you can say? Surely I, I would have come to help you if I was able, but you could not, and I could not cross over. I'm disappointed I didn't have a new tunic still. By the temple gates, Joachim, Josite shoutings shouting, what does it mean for me? And Joachim pondered the dream, rocking back and forth in the down-filled wicker chair while he stroked his beard, and he said, Ah, could it be? Could it be? For the lack of a single copper coin, you might have entered the kingdom of heaven. Last night, I decided to do as the rabbi said and invite poor people to my banquet. My wife said to me, you'll find no one poorer than yourself. Master, I'll invite you to my banquet. And Dositheus said, I see. This is not a story about a rich man and a poor blind man. Those are the primary characters in our story, aren't they? But this is not a story about two individuals, one who had privilege and luck on their side and the other who did not. This is a story about humanity. It's a story about who among us is able to see beyond value structures to see the image of God in our midst. Are we able to see, to truly see each person we meet, each person we connect with, to truly see the hungry and the thirsty and those needing clothing and those in sickness or in prison and say, ah, you are in the image of God and I see you and I see your humanity. I don't see the system that you're in. I don't see the structure that you've been Stuck in, I see you. I see somebody beloved by the creator, made fearfully and wonderfully in God's image. And I see your humanity. I love this story because the whole time we don't realize how poor Josephus truly is. He is the poorest man in the entire story and Joachim is the richest. You see, the Bible, y'all, didn't just go west. It stayed east, and it also went east and south, and also South America. And this story, one of the reasons why I love it so much, it lands us in Jesus' day. It reminds us of what might we have heard if we'd heard that banquet story. Many of us have thought, oh, that'll be what heaven is like. Poor people will be there too. How nice. But what if we heard it the way Joachim heard it, and we thought, oh, I must go and welcome the poor in. So there is an aspect of Christianity that maybe some of you are quite familiar with and some of you may not be as familiar with called liberation theology. Anybody ever heard of this just a little bit? Yeah. Now, liberation theology is debated and discussed, and people get worked up about it in all sorts of directions, so I'm not here to say any particular thing other to let you know that when you talk about Christianity or when you talk about what it is to follow Jesus, you at least need to include people who are following liberation theology as part of our big church family. So for those of us who maybe have said, "I think I and feel I need to deconstruct, because I need to reject the white supremacy and nationalism, I've seen in the church, and "Amen, yes, please. let's reject that. That is not of Christ." Please note that that is not the only story that the global church is telling. Liberation theology is a broad term used to describe a loose collection of theologians from around the world who are examining the relationships between their faith and systems of oppression and liberation, and they are putting faith into action. And this has started specifically in Central America and in South America. There's black liberation theology, there's womanist theology, there's eco-theology, primarily emerged in the late 1960s in Latin America as well as in the civil rights movement. That liberation theology certainly informed the civil rights movement here and Martin Luther King Jr.'s teachings as well. He coupled it with Gandhi's teachings and and Jesus' teachings of nonviolence. And in those efforts, all of that theology is to say that there is a need to see the humanity in the other. And the person who can see the humanity in another is the one who is rich. Just a week or two before Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he was speaking out for the sanitation workers in Memphis who'd been so terribly mistreated in systems of oppression and poverty where they were working day long, huge, long wages and not being paid at all. And he was talking about the disparity of wealth in those systems. And the garbage sanitation strikers that were there who were working, they, this was their claim, this was their sign I am a man. It was the understanding that this is not about rich and poor alone. This is about humanity, an understanding that we are all made in the image and in the likeness of God. Liberation theology takes us a step further. They talk specifically about a preferential option of the poor. And the reason why they frame it this way is actually entirely because of teachings like this of Jesus's in Matthew 25, where they see that Jesus doesn't just say, let's be nice to poor people, but Jesus says that when you are with a poor person, when you serve a poor person, you are with me. Liberation theology doesn't ask, how do we fix the poor? Liberation theology asks, what do we have to learn from the poor? If they are Christ in our midst, then what do they have to teach us? Liberation theology argues that the church is being shaped by the poor. Not what we can offer them, but what they can offer us. How they can lead us. Because that is where Jesus is, and that is who Jesus is. So the question that many theologians begin to ask around the world because of teachings of Jesus, like the ones in our story this afternoon people ask, what is God saying to the church from the poor? And when we seek God from that position, by the way, it's a threat to those in institutionalized power structures. Because we've immediately centered that narrative and said, Jesus is here. Jesus is with this person amongst these people, and we come to learn from them, just like Dositheus needed to learn From Joachim, just like he was the one who was most impoverished in our story, and Joachim was the one with most wealth and richness in his life. We come to those marginalized and oppressed and ask them to teach us, understanding that we need them, we need one another. Jesus' teachings are unsettling, aren't they? When you really start to dig down or you think, I, maybe I'll try to do this this week. Now, we've just told this story about this beautiful banquet. Joachim, unsettled by Jesus' teaching but also inspired by it, runs home to his wife and says, let's throw a feast and find the poorest of the poor and bring them to our home. Is that what we'll all do this week? We'll, we'll find out next Sunday. I'll ask, who this last week? Went out amongst, right? It's not easy to do what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus' teachings, though, should unsettle us. They should unsettle our addiction to power and prestige and wealth and authority. And they should get us back to what it means to be a shepherd like Jesus. These teachings should be unsettling. If in our story between Joachim and Bilha and Dositheus, when you think, what do I want my child to grow up to be or to have? Isn't it that you would really like them on the nice estate, right? With the vineyards. Who here has not, especially during the pandemic, did you not? Spend some time on Zillow trying to hit an eject button to anywhere else. And you're like, well, Italy has vineyards. Oh, look, I can buy a house for a dollar. Oh, is this just me? And I can renovate that house for that, right? Have you guys seen those deals? You're like, maybe that's, maybe that's my call. <laughs> but have we thought about what it is we truly want our children to have? What we truly want ourselves to have, which is a, a wealth and richness because of who they are with, because of the humanity that they see in every single person that they encounter. You know, Paul talks about Jesus taking on this position in Philippians 2, chapters verses 2 through 11, that Jesus didn't go out and try to build that big estate himself, did he? He didn't go out and try to invest and build huge superstructures. Power structures. Instead, Paul says, If then you have any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility. Regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Why? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human life likeness. And being a found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. I'm going to invite the team to come on up. And as we turn our hearts towards this banqueting table that Christ has set in our midst where all are welcome, where the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich come and find even footing in front of the cross. My prayer for us, Spark, is that we might this week, today and this week and every day, open up our hearts to Jesus who identifies with the least of these and when we are with them, we are with him. And we are the ones that are poor in spirit who need to seek that wealth and that richness that is found in those places. Amen. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed God, and broke the bread, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table. Come, all who are hungry, all who are thirsty, all who are in need of healing and hope. Come, the table has been prepared. We have been welcome.